Well, good morning. It's a, it's a privilege to get to speak to you from God's Word this morning. This is a very sobering moment to, to come before you and to speak from God's Word. And so I've been praying a lot. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for me. Um, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the letter of First Peter. First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Well, like many of you, uh, I've tried my best to stay up to date with what's going on over in Ukraine. Let's continue to pray that things come to a peaceful resolution. But situations like what's going on in Ukraine have a way of highlighting both the worst of human sin in the world, but they also have a way of highlighting the best of human courage in the face of danger. One of those, one of the best moments of courage that we have seen in, in the midst of this conflict comes from the president of Ukraine himself. As you know, he was extended an invitation to evacuate the country and his response to that, invitations, uh, to that invitation was, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Well, with that statement, the president made it abundantly clear that he was determined to stand firm in order to defend his country. When we come to the letter of 1 Peter, Peter wants believers to have the same determination. Peter wants believers to be firmly rooted in the gospel, particularly in the face of suffering. And the ammunition that he provides to these believers is nothing other than the grace of God. At the end of his letter, I'll read this for you. At the end of his letter, as Peter is signing off at the end of the letter, he says to these believers these words. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's, that's the purpose statement of Peter's letter. He wants believers to be firmly rooted in God's grace. And in chapter 2, the passage of our, of our morning functions as a, as a window, as, a, as, a, as part of that declaration of God's grace to these believers. It is, it is sort of like the window that you open and you begin to see parts of God's grace in it. And so with that in mind, let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 through 10. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Listen carefully. These are God's words. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture behold 
I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were, a pe- you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we have already been recipients of your grace. That we can be here, that we can be worshiping you together as a body. It is because of grace. And as we look to your word, we ask that you continue to pour out grace on us, Lord. Grant me to be uh, faithful to your word. And give us ears to hear, Lord. And as that old Anglican prayer says... What we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us in Christ. What we are not, make us. By your word and by your spirit, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past Christmas, I got the chance to reread John Bunyan's book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. I love that book. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. Read it to your children. Uh, but if you've read it, you know that the, the book tracks the journey of a man named Christian. This man is making his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And as I read it over this time around, I, I was reminded of several things. First, I was reminded of the privilege that it is to follow Jesus. It is a great thing to be a Christian, to be united with Christ on the basis of God's grace that we bear his name in our name. As a pastor once said, we are called Christians, that is Christians, so as to signify that Our very own identity cannot be understood apart from our union with Christ. It is a great thing to be a Christian. But I also was reminded that although it is a great privilege to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus also is not safe. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. Jesus says in Matthew 16, as he is talking to his disciples, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The very path that Jesus invites us to join 
It's a path that leads straight through suffering and not around it. Peter himself in this letter of 1 Peter says to these believers, he says, if, uh, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Well, the Bible is very clear in its testimony. The true grace of God not only unites us to Christ so that in this union we experience both his life but we also experience his sufferings. And if we're honest, I know this is very true of me. If we're honest, we can often have a view of God's grace that is limited to the calm of the sea. But it doesn't include the inescapable storms of the ocean. And as a result, we can often be shaken, shaken in, our, in our suffering, in our pain. Well, Peter's audience here know very well what it's like to be uh, shaken by their suffering. Peter is addressing a group of believers who are in exile as a result of identifying with King Jesus. They have been uh, uh, they have been joined to both their, their his his joy and their pain, and his pain is resulted both in their joy and their pain. They are, they are being maligned for their identification as believers. Thus, as we read, he, he writes to, to talk about the, the true grace of God and for them to be able to stand firm in it. And so the question that I want us to think about for the rest of our time in light of our verses is this. What impact does God's grace have in our lives? If, if Peter is calling us to stand firm and he is declaring the true grace of God to these believers who are suffering, the question is, what impact does God's grace have in our lives? Well, in our passage, Peter reminds us that, uh, about three realities that are rooted in God's grace. Peter reminds believers that in Christ, we are made alive, that in Christ, we are being built, and that in Christ, we are commissioned so let us take those three things one at a time. What impact does God's grace have in our lives? Well, first, Peter tells us that in Christ, we're made alive. Look with me to, to verse 4 and 5. Peter says to these believers, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now, notice that Peter here in this, in this, pas in this passage is, is making a correlation between Jesus as a living stone and his audience like living stones. In verse 4, Peter calls Jesus a living stone, and in verse 5, he calls his audience living stones. Now, how, how are we to understand the correlation between the audience being like living stones and Jesus as a living stone? Well, surely the, the correlation is a consequential one. That is to say that these believers are living stones as a result of coming to Jesus. 
their life springs out, springs forward, springs out from the very life of Christ. And that is a basic doctrine of our faith. The gospel is the good news that God makes sinners alive on the basis of his grace. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, but in God's mercy, he has made us alive together with Christ. Peter is reminding reminding these believers that their coming to Jesus is a coming to life. And this is not the first time that Peter points to this reality. Back in chapter 1, Peter explodes in worship when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is doing here is that he is shining the very life of Christ in the present darkness of their suffering. He is reminding these believers that they are coming, that they have come to a death-defying Savior. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a powerful declaration of the invincible, inconquerable life of Jesus. Death itself could not hold him. And as you come to him, and as these believers come to him and are united to him by grace, they participate in that very life. And so the life of Christ itself becomes the very foundational floor, becomes the the, the very foundation, the very unshakable foundation of our hope. The life of Christ becomes the unshakable foundation of our hope. Not sure if you've ever seen the movie. Um, I saw this a long time ago, the movie End of a Spear. This is a, a movie about the, the five missionaries uh, who were killed by an Ecuadorian native tribe. Um, among the missionaries was Jim Elliott. Uh, and in that movie, there's a powerful scene. Uh, it's between Nate Saint and his young son, Stephen Saint. So as, as they're getting ready to go to this missionary trip, Stephen Saint, the son, says to his father, and, and you can almost hear the, the tenderness, the fear behind uh, the, the little boy's voice. He says, if the natives attack, will you defend yourself? Will you use guns? In response, the father says, Son, we can't shoot them. They're not ready for heaven, but we are. That is glorious. Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries that were killed that day were firmly rooted in the grace of God. They were established in the reality that their lives were hidden in the very uh, life of Christ. And so they lived and they died for the sake of God's kingdom. 
these missionaries were fearless and hopeful that their un- hopeful in their union with Christ and this this is the grace that is available to you and to me it is a grace that makes us a hopeful people a people whose hope in life is beyond the grave and so peter is telling us stand firm in this grace that as you come to christ you are being made you have been made alive you have been made alive therefore oak mountain stand firm in the grace of god Well, in addition to being made alive, Peter tells believers that they, these believers that they are being built. Believers are being built in Christ. Look with me to verse 5 again. In verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, notice here that Peter is very interested in this stone image. Right? He, he, he talks about Jesus being a stone. He talks about his audience being a stone. He's very interested in this stone image. In fact, he, he quotes three, not, not just one or two, but three different Old Testament passages that employ this very image. In, in verses 6 through 8, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28. Then he quotes from Psalm 118. And then he also quotes from Isaiah 8. And, and as he quotes from these passages, Peter makes a straight line between what he sees in the Old Testament this, this image of a stone to Jesus. He, he, when he looks at his Old Testament uh, Bible and he reads about stones, living stone, he makes a straight line from that to Jesus. And I think the reason he does that is because Jesus himself draws a straight line between these Old Testament passages and himself. Back in Matthew 21, when, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and, and they're seeking to kill Jesus, Jesus tells the, the parable of the wicked tenants. If, if you remember the parable, it's, it's, it's a story about some tenants that are they're wicked and they want to stay in possession of a particular vineyard. And so they create a plan and they murder the servants of the owner of the vineyard. And then they don't stop there, right? They, they continue to, uh, to plan and they finally uh, put to death the, the son of the vineyard, uh, uh, of the, the master of the vineyard. They want to stay in possession of this vineyard. And as Jesus ends the parable, he looks and says about the Pharisees, quoting Psalm 118, the very verse that Peter quotes here, saying, Have you not read in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that it's prompting Peter 
as he is talking to these believers who are experiencing suffering, what is prompting Peter to look to his Old Testament and to look for images of stone, reject the stone, and to, and to make a light, to, to make a straight line to that, to Jesus? Well, I think that Peter brings up the image of Christ as a rejected stone that became the foundational stone in God's building project because Peter wants these believers to see their lives through the, through the life of Christ. In her commentary, Karen, Karen Jobes, she says that the experience and destiny of those who come to Christ are bound up with the experience and destiny of Christ himself. Peter points to Jesus and traces both his rejection and his becoming the, the foundation of stone of God's house so that these believers see their lives through the very life of Christ. The world could not see what God was doing in the sufferings of Christ. From, from an earthly perspective, it looked like Jesus had been betrayed by one of his own wrongly accused by his enemies, abandoned by one of his closest friends, put to death in one of the most shameful ways, and yet in all this rejection, God himself was working to reconcile all things to himself through the death and resurrection of his son, why does Peter want us to see that? Well, let me try to illustrate this. Some of you may know that before coming to Birmingham, I, I worked as a respiratory therapist. I was in healthcare. And so I, was a, I worked as a respiratory therapist for about 12 years. And as an RT, uh, I spent most of my time in, in the ER or the ICU or labor and, labor and delivery. Um, and, and often when I worked in the, in the ER... We would get calls from, from the ambulance saying, hey, we're, we're coming with a patient. Cardiac arrest will be there in about five minutes. And so we would get things ready. And as soon as they, will, they would show up, it was all hands on deck. Right? And, and my particular role in, in that situation was to make sure that we had an opened airway. So we had the, the intubation kits were ready, the, the, the ventilators were ready, the machines were ready. I would help with giving uh, oxygen, doing chest compressions. Uh, at that point where, where we were working, the, the patient is unconscious, right? He, he doesn't know what's going on, but unbeknownst to him, everyone, everybody in that room is working to keep him alive. Now, here's my point. God is always doing more than we can see. And, and Peter says to these believers who are experiencing suffering, look to Christ who was rejected, and to the world's eyes, this just seemed like things took a bad turn, but to God, in, in the eyes of God, and what God was doing was to lay out a foundation for redemption, and as he points to Jesus, he says to them, you yourselves are being built. 
This is a present reality in the lives of believers. If you are in Christ, God is working this very day, this very moment. He is working in your life. It may not seem like it, and it may not feel like it, but God is always doing more than what we can see in our confusion, in our frustrations, in our pain, in our suffering. God is always doing more than we can see. And Peter tells these believers, you, and he tells, he tells you this morning, tells us, you are being built. God is working. Stand firm in this grace. Rest assured that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But finally, Peter says that believers are not just being built in Christ, but that in Christ, believers themselves are being commissioned. Look again with me to verse 9. 9 and 10, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this, in this passage, Peter again is looking back to the Old Testament. Right? He, he, he is using phraseology or titles that are exclusively, that, that were exclusively for Israel in the Old Testament. He, he talks about uh, or titles that are uh, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In in his commentary, Dr. Doriani says that these statements were foundational uh, uh, foundational statements about the identity of Jesus, uh, of, of Israel. These titles were spoken of Israel back in Exodus 19 and also in Isaiah 43. And yet here, Peter is taking titles that are used of Israel and applying it to mostly Gentile believers here in First Peter. Now, why does Peter does that? Or, or more importantly, how does Peter have warrant to do that? And the answer is yes. Peter can do this because of the gospel. Through the work of Christ, believers of all nations are being grafted in to God's family. They belong to God not just by virtue of creation, but they belong to God by virtue of redemption. So what's the point? What's the point of using these titles? I think the point that Peter is trying to make is that your identity shapes your behavior. Your identity shapes your behavior. I was trying to figure out a good illustration for this. So this is what I got for you. Uh, I've never flown in first class, um, I, so I don't know how much legroom you have in that first in, in first class. But there's other spots in the plane that give you a lot of legroom, and but but those spots are right next to two exit doors. 
the way the plane is, is, is structured, if you sit there, you have a lot of leg room. But by sitting there, you also have a lot of responsibility. Right? If, if, if something were to happen, you're respons- if you're sitting there, you're responsible to open that door and to help others come out of the plane safely. The point is that that position though gives you the privilege of extended and spacious leg room also gives you a commission. That position gives you a commission. So the point is that, again, identity should drive your behavior. In his commentary, again, Dr. Doriani says that the privileged state of God's people leads to a privileged action. In other words, your position as God's people informs and shapes your commission as God's people. Your position as God's people, a people who are chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that position as a, as a child of God informs your commission. What, what is that commission? What is it that this text calls us to do? Well, we see that in verse 9. Peter says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are a Christian, your position in Christ makes you a proclaiming person. You are, believers are a proclaiming people. Now, what, what are the excellencies that Peter has in mind? Well, to Peter, we, believers proclaim the excellencies of God. But, but, but what, what are they? Let me, let me give you a list here. Peter says in this book that we proclaim the excellencies of God's sovereign election. Back in chapter 1, Peter says that these believers, Peter calls these believers elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge. We, we, are, we are to proclaim the excellencies of God's mercy. Again, in chapter 1, Peter says that believers uh, are, are, are born again on the basis of God's great mercy. God's great mercy. And doesn't that just level every pride of ours? That it took great mercy to cause us to be born again. Well, we are also to proclaim the excellencies of God's covenant-keeping love. Again, chapter 1, Peter, Peter says that believers are kept by God through faith. Through faith, If you are a believer this morning, if you woke up a believer this morning, it's not because you hold on to God, but it's because God is holding on to you. We also proclaim the excellencies of God's living and abiding word. In chapter 1 again, Peter says that all flesh is like grass and all its glories like the, grass of the, uh, like the flower of the grass. But the grass, with, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
We also ought to proclaim the excellencies of God's judgment. Peter says that God judges impartially according to one's deeds. One more and we'll close. Peter says that we are to proclaim the excellencies of God's redemptive work. He says that you and I have been ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish. These are the excellencies that we are to proclaim. These are the excellencies excellencies of God's surprising grace that we must, as a church, continue to proclaim in both word and deed over the fence, over the mountain, and overseas. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace the grace that unites us to Christ, a grace that assures us that you are working in us, and a grace that commissions us, Lord. This is unfathomable grace. I pray that as we see it, Lord, that we would experience it as well and that we would stand firm in it. And that in doing so, we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Juan. How privileged we are to uh, hear the word preached. How privileged we are as a church to play a small part in the equipping of men and women for ministry Um, The reason I'm up here now is uh, in the PCA, uh, the benediction is reserved for ordained teaching elders, and so uh, Juan is in the midst of going through his examinations by Presbytery, uh, along with Keske Edota, and uh, continue to pray for both Juan and Keske as they take their examinations as they preach to Presbytery, and then uh, one day, as they're ordained, we hope very shortly And uh, one of the privileges of being ordained is pronouncing the benediction, which I will do now. So let's all stand and hear the benediction. Again, remember, this really is the blessing of God that he says he enacts as it is pronounced over you. So receive it in faith. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, now and always. Amen. Amen.